friends, and welcome to another episode of Tom Talks. And before we jump into this thing, I've just got to say, uh, Southern Tom Foolery, we celebrated our first birthday last week. We did. <clears throat> so congratulations, sure did. guys. We did it. We made it a whole year. We're not a newborn anymore. None of us died. We're, we're just we're, a fussy toddler. <laughs> is, is one-year-old toddler? I thought two makes you a toddler. Yeah, uh-huh. two toddler. So what's one-year-old? Oh, baby. Just, baby. It's not a newborn. <laughs> not a newborn's that we're first year. We're still babies. We're babies. still babies. Still a baby. But babies I mean, I was. I mean, yeah. So there you go. Baby stay out. That thing, that thing's more than a baby. Way smarter yeah. than a baby. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Um, so to all of you who have been with us since the beginning, you guys are the real MVPs, man. And to everyone who's joined us joined us since then, uh, thank you so much for taking the plunge with this humble podcast of Southern nerds playing games that we love. I mean, it's just awesome yeah. that we get to do this and we get to I'll, interact with you guys I'll on drink Discord. To that. Yeah, I'll drink no, to no, that. Yeah. Cheers, guys. For sure. Cheers. Cheers to you guys for keeping us going for a year and i can't wait to see where we go in the following yeah for sure well without further ado uh i'm your host and resident vesk player heath parker uh as always i'm joined by southern tom foolery's all-powerful game master adam kelly what's up how are you doing today i'm pretty good pretty good uh we're also joined by my good friend and for the rest of the month my roommate you may know him as the voice of Andrew, Android, Xenophanes 5, founding member of, I did say Andrew, his name is not Andrew, <laughs> not in this life. Andrew um, the Android, that's your, yeah. that's your next character. <laughs> yeah. uh, but you know him as Xenophanes 5, founding member and chief financial officer of the Apollo Protection Agency, Mr. John Thomas. Hey! Hey, how's everybody doing? Um, well, how are you doing? I'm doing good, actually. I like it when John's on Tom Talks because I feel like he has like the perfect voice for this type of show. Yeah, he's you got know? the NPR voice for sure. Yeah, well, but like not not like the not like Josh's NPR voice, which is really nice and soft, but that'll put you to sleep. Like this one, I think John, you have a voice that commands attention without being abrasive, and that's my one compliment I'll give to you all year. So, <laughs> just <laughs> velvety chocolate. I get it. Uh, so we just got done recording a really exciting, tense episode of our main show that for you guys will be in the future. Um, yes. Well, I will. We will say it's episode 66. Yeah. And, and <laughs> it was it was wild. It was a really crazy episode. So I think we're all in a, a, a good headspace as far as having just done, uh, you know, uh, just finished an episode that we think is really listenable and really uh, enjoyable. Uh, it was fun I, for us at the at the very least. Oh, you know? man. it was something like that. <laughs> <laughs> it was fun a session. Me. Fun for me. Very intense and stressful for you. Which to me, that's fun for all of us, right? Yeah, at, on some <laughs> level. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so um, this is a really exciting Tom talks for me in particular, but I think for all of us who love the lore and the settings of Starfinder, uh, we're going to be talking about a new book. Heck yeah, heck yeah! I have been waiting for this book. Like oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Me and John are both the like the near space book is like right in our wheelhouse, and we both were waiting to get this forever. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Give we're so excited lore. when we Give do me everything. You know, right. Give me all the lore. So, uh, the book is called Near Space. 
And in function, it's much like a previous book called The Pact Worlds. Um, however, it differs from that book in one key detail. The Pact Worlds book examines all the planets and locations in The Pact Worlds, the system that revolves physically around the Pact World's sun, a.k.a. Mataris, or the Burning Mother, but functionally in terms of lore around Absalom Station, which is the planet, or the, the station that replaced the planet Galarian that people would know as the home of the Pathfinder game system. Um, so, Galarian sort of poofed out of existence, as far as anyone knows, during an event characterized by mass amnesia known as the Gap, quite literally a gap in the recorded history of the solar system. Near space, however, serves a similar function for a different place or places, really, particularly a star system known as the Vescarium. It examines all of the planets within that system, but it also looks at a slew of other planets. <laughs> Stop doing that, Adam. Oh, sorry. He, he has a black hole background and he keeps, like, sensually rubbing the black hole. Um, <laughs> but near space, stop, you really are distracting me. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, as I said, it, it also looks at a slew of other planets, not so much defined by their relation to a star or star system, but by the time it would take a traveler to reach them using a magical, faster-than-light mode of transportation called drift travel. If you're new to Starfinder, essentially, there is a way to travel vast distances faster than thought possible before the gap that uses what are known as drift beacons to bounce from one sector of space to another. If you've ever played an RPG like Skyrim that has a fast travel system, it's kinda like that. You pick a drift beacon situated near a location you'd like to go, you activate your ship's drift engine, and you enter the drift, which allows you to get there in a matter of days or weeks as opposed to years or light years. The locations that are accessible in this way are said to be a part of near space, as opposed to far space. So this book looks at planets and locations that are incredibly far from the actual packed worlds, but that have been made much more accessible by this magical mode of travel. That's uh, that, that about right? Near space. <laughs> near space. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. That's, that's what it is. You know, it's, it's much more near in the sense of time of travel than distance of travel. Yeah, and it's it's really kind of abstract, which is why, you know, I wanted to spend the time to go ahead and address it and clear it up because, you know, I mean, there I would imagine there are people that listen to our show that like this may be the only experience they have with Starfinder. They haven't played it themselves or really delved into much of the lore. They just like to be entertained, and that's completely fine. So, for you guys, uh, I'll go ahead and lay it out for you. Okay? We're going to break this episode up into a few chunks. Uh, first, we'll talk about the Vescarium, an entire solar system conquered by the warlike reptilian race known as the Vesk. Then we'll talk about some of the other worlds considered to be in near space. And finally, we'll look over some of the new player options in the book, uh, which is something that I think everybody can get excited about, even if you're not a big lore person, because that just means there's more stuff you can do by creating characters, you know? Um which includes new options for races, backgrounds, archetypes, and some new starships, weapons, armor, items, and spells. Does that sound good? Do they have any near space animal crackers? Um, I, <clears throat> I don't think so, Adam. Um, Just roll with it. Yes. You're really yeah. leaning yeah. into yes. that one-year-old aspect. No, huh? I quit. I quit. <laughs> I, you told me there would be animal crackers here, and they're not, and so I don't want to do this anymore. Okay, cool. 
So <laughs> for part one, like I said, we're going to talk about the Vescarium, okay? To understand these people, the Vesk, and their solar system that they inhabit, you kind of have to understand some basic elements of their society and their philosophy. So here we go, and again, I'll try to keep it brief. The Vesk are a race of reptilian warriors that basically resemble really buff humanoid iguanas. <laughs> their homeworld, Vesk Prime, is the nearest planet to the solar system's star, Gavanishka. The Vesk primarily worship a deity called Demoratosh, which is a god of war and conquest, and those are pretty much their defining traits. After conquering their own planet, which came to be known as Vesk Prime, they set their sights outward and over millennia conquered all eight planets in their solar system. Once they had accomplished this, their desire for expansion and conquest led them to seek out the nearest star system, which happened to be the Pact Worlds, and they attempted to conquer it as well. In fact, it was the Vesk invasion that prompted the planets of Galarian to unite in mutual defense of their common foe, culminating, 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 uh, culminating in the Absalom Pact, which is the namesake of the Pact World system. So the Vescarium and the Pact Worlds maintained a sort of cold war called the Silent War for hundreds of years, neither able to really gain any ground. It was only due to the invasion of the Swarm, uh, who some of you may be familiar with from a certain AP. Swarm, represent. Swarm, represent. <laughs> um, the Swarm are a massive intergalactic uh, force of insectile beings that the Vescarium and Pact Worlds eventually... Uh, had to agree upon a shaky alliance so they could work together and push back this foe, which they did. And ever since, the two solar systems have been reluctant allies and travel between the two regions has become more common. However, there's still a significant amount of mistrust between them that persists to the current date in Starfinder. Again, like I think a book like this, much like the Pact Worlds, just requires a lot of setup, you know, uh, to, to really dive in further to any of these these worlds that we're talking about, you kind of have to know some. Oh, history. absolutely! There's so many pieces. Well, it's the whole galaxy, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's all. all right, yeah. So uh, again, I'm sorry to give you guys a novella's worth of exposition, but but again, so much of this book is dedicated to a better understanding of the Vesk and the kind of empire that they forged. That I think it's important to start with those basics. Anyway, that's the basics. The Vesk are lizard people warriors who conquered the entire solar system they hail from. The first major section of this book details the planets that make up that system. Now we won't obviously won't have time to cover all the planets in the Vescarium, but we're each going to talk about one of them to get the fire of curiosity stoked in this Starfinder community. Hey, you like that? Yeah, I do. Before we do that, I wanted to ask you guys a couple of questions about about near space. Shoot. Um, how did you feel about the book being so heavily focused on the Vesk and the Vescarium? About time. Oh. Oh yeah, oh yeah. About time. Seriously, I mean, ser I mean, when you're talking about the signing of the Absalom, uh, the Pact Worlds uh, uh, treaty, okay, and there wasn't enough information on that, and we've got already an AP about Attack of the Swarm. So why is there more information about the Vescarium? I think it was definitely needs to be done. So yeah, because they're kind of. It. In, in the meta narrative that we have, it, it really was, as far as the major, like, relatively recent historical events, the Vescarium, Vescarium and the Pact Worlds joining together to fight off the Swarm is the most recent, like, like World War type event. Right? Well, I'll say that 
at first I was a little put off that it was so much vascular. But then, like, reading it and understanding that the vescarium is not just the vesc. You know what I mean? It's not, the vescarium is a whole nother solar system. You know, like, it's the second solar system of the Starfinder universe. There's Pact Worlds, and it has its eight to nine planets, and the Vescarium has eight planets. Like, it's a whole nother solar system. They just happen to be the people in charge. You yeah. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so then it was like, it was weird. As I read it, like, I kept going through these these feelings of, like, deep, deep, deep respect for the Vesk, and, all, and then, like, pivoting to like man these motherfuckers are <laughs> some these fucking guys. like land yeah. stealing you know col- yeah col- resource yeah. stealing uh, motherfuckers yeah colonialism bullshit yeah. motherfuckers yeah. you know Man- what I mean? manifest destiny yeah, kind of yeah, exactly Gosh, exactly you know? i mean that, that's the dichotomy even with the klingons and star trek and that's where they borrow heavily from you know right. sure well, you may read, be reading a little bit too much. No, talking about honor and conquest. Honor and conquest. That's a fair comparison, you know. Whether it was the intent of the authors or not, it's certainly there are certainly things to be compared between the sure, sure. way there those two races operate as races, you know. Yeah, there are definite similarities. I just I hesitate to say that they borrowed heavily from specifically the Klingon. Because there's been lots of oh, I wouldn't say that the they're, they're the main source. Absolutely not. Yeah. Uh, one other thing I wanted to, uh, I didn't have anywhere else to jam this in, but I wanted to talk about it early. Uh, how amazing is the fucking artwork in this oh book? Oh my god, dude! It is so, so many good. different kinds of lizards that I didn't think were actually imaginable. Fat lizards, skinny lizards, just like squat lizards. Everything about them, and they did them wonderfully. Yeah, well, and and even and we'll get into this later, like with some of the alternate like vest racial features and stuff. There's, there's kinds of, uh, you know, lizards that you are vest that you hadn't really thought about or you didn't know about yet because we didn't know about them as other racial options. And to Adam's point, the Vescarium is not just the vest, but the vest are the ruling power there. So anywhere you go in the system, it, the planet you go to might not be primarily Vesk, but they'll be there, you know, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, they, and they will have adapted to those worlds in mm-hmm. one way or yeah, another. That, so that's where the respect comes in is that as conquering as they are, they don't seem terribly interested in like stripping cultures of their identity. You know, yeah. they, they, they do come in and lay down the law and say, you mm-hmm. are now governed by this militaristic imperialism or whatever. Mm-hmm. But like, they also like t- to learn from other races Cultures. And, yeah. and, and and I mean, to some degree, they kind of absorb that into their own and you could, yeah, they do. Could, yeah. But you could, you could say that that's not a negative thing because that's like well, co-opting, you know, somebody else's identity and them saying, look at how good Vescarium art is, even though. Vest didn't really do it. You yeah, know? well, they well they don't really do that. They they very much give credit to where the art came from. They just their focus is so much on military and so little on culture that they kind of have to fill in the gaps that they have culturally with other people's culture. And yes, that that smacks of cultural appropriation. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that isn't a valid 
consideration. But I also think in a lot of ways that that's not really their intent. And they're not like a girl at Coachella wearing a feathered headdress kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like they, they sincerely mm-hmm. combine with other races. And For sure. Cultures. But that, 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 you know, to use your example, that, that girl at Coachella isn't like intending to be disrespectful, asshole, yeah. but it's, she's still kind of being an yeah, asshole. You exactly. know what I mean? Like, so as I said, it was interesting, like that dynamic being present throughout reading this whole book really was really kind of flavored my approach to it in, a, in a, to me a positive way because it engaged me in my thought process and all like that and then of course the art of as you said like I don't want to gloss over that point the art here is amazing it is like so many great vistas and character art and the starships all look awesome you know like it's just really yeah. really well done yeah well yeah. and it's and and you know it's not just there are a lot of depictions of of Vesk that we had never been able to see before which is awesome but there's a lot of artwork of all the other races that are our primary races in the Vescarium as well as art of planets and geography and all that stuff so I, I think you know I can definitely see where you were coming from at first thinking this was just going to be 160 pages of Vesk, eight planets full of Vesk, like that. But that is not the case. It's not. No, you know? it's not. Um, and as far as your uh, the kind of dichotomy that they have with combining their culture with others, I'm definitely going to uh, dig into that a little bit as we go on. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but as far as the artwork, I was impressed both with all the different depictions of Vesks as well as the little bit of spotlight afforded to some of the other races in the book, which being non-packed worlds races don't necessarily get a lot of love in that regard because the game started in the packed worlds. So right. there's a there's a growth that has to happen in a game this new, relatively, that you have to familiarize yourself with one system and its you know varied peoples before you can move on that much to another system. And and we've had the alien archives gradually coming out and being introduced to more races gradually. And now we're getting some more context for like, it's not just that you can play some of these, what you would think of as wilder races compared to the packed worlds, but now you get a grounding experience of like where they are. A hundred percent agree with that. And the choices of races that they focused on to give the racial benefits and background to and options to it's great. It's like, I mean, I'm just looking at the list now, and I know we're going to get into it later, so I won't talk about it too much, but the fact that there are options for Skittermanders, Patras, Gorons, and Demise, those four classes right there are all, or those four races are all races that I have interest in playing. Like, I want to, me- I, before this book came out, like, I was, those are, those are races that I was like, ooh, it'd be fun to play one of those. And now, if and when that happens, not only do I have, like, the option to do that but i have like a full palette of of tools to make a well-developed character you yeah, know you've got you've got some backstory fodder right 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 right, right. and alternate options you know yeah 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 and you, those that that's a valid point because it, whereas you may have been interested in those races to begin with it's just the bare bones of like what is their primary right. stat like and now if you you know and that's the good thing about patience in starfinder is sometimes it sucks to have to wait a long time to be able to play in this ap you want to play in or create this character that you want to create but they're constantly putting out new stuff and the, the longer you wait sometimes the more 
options you have to define that character you've been wanting to play so badly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Let's we can talk in. about we can yeah. freeform talk about this forever, and we will. Uh, in <laughs> we a, will like a four hour yeah. podcast. Right. Uh, okay, so on to the planets of the Vescarium, and necessarily, I kind of have to start this one. Okay, if you didn't already know. The Vesk are not the most creative of people when it comes to naming planets. The mm. Vesk homeworld and the seat of the Vescarium is a hot and dry but abundant world called Vesk Prime, which was originally just called Vesk. Uh, like the Vesk Empire in general, talking about Vesk Prime necessarily involves a little bit of history. The Vesk originally shared Vesk Prime with two other major sapient species. The Skaraskans, described as jackal-faced arthropods, mm. which... Let's take a second to think about that nightmare fuel. Let's not. <laughs> Gross. Nah, take a second. Imagine it. Really, really imagine a giant spider with the face of a jackal. Well, mm. John, you have Heath to blame if one of these shows up in our game. <laughs> um, Fuck you. So that was the first race that uh, was inhabiting the planet with the Vesk on, on Vesk. It's, it can be confusing. Uh, and there's also Kayagaras, a species of snake-like humanoids. Humanoids. So, fueled by the tenets of the Vesk deity Demoratash, the Vesk came to believe it was their destiny to conquer and rule their homeworld. Like, this is that manifest destiny idea coming in already. Mm-hmm. Very, mm-hmm. very already. early. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Very early. Founding tenets of Vesk. Yes. Yes. I mean, I mean, they literally follow a deity of conquest, you know? Uh, to this end, the Vesk warred with the Skaraskans, eventually annihilating them, believing that leaving even a single opponent alive to seek revenge could be their undoing, could threaten the survival of the entire Vesk species, which I personally think is a little bit paranoid. Um, having witnessed this genocide against the Skaraskans, the other major power on the planet, the Kayagaras, who were more magically gifted, retreated into massive cave systems that existed beneath their lands. They used their magic to build formidable defenses, even magically moving entire cities underground. Holy shit. Yeah. What a chore. This, however, only slowed the determined Vesk, and though it took centuries, the Vesk ultimately annihilated the Kayagaras as they had the Skaraskans, and the Vesk Empire came to control the entire planet. But this was not enough for the conquest crazed Vesk, and they not. eventually developed just a planet. It's, yeah, <laughs> and they eventually developed space travel, built a massive warship to fuel their military called the Conqueror's Forge, which is the most metal thing I've ever heard. It's it's wild, uh, and one by one captured and colonized all eight planets in their star system. And I will now let Adam and John tell you about some of the other planets that exist under the rule of the Vesk in this star system slash empire known as the Vescarium. I'm, I'm going to let John go first on this. All one, right. Actually. Okay. Go well, I did want to add a little tidbit onto that, and that was the fact that um, the all code uh, for the uh, blueprints for drift travel did not reach the Vescarium. As opposed to the Aslanti, who actually did receive it. What does that tell you about two warring nations? You know, not warring against each other, but 
But yeah, to I mean, conquering nations. Yeah, the conqueror. Yeah, exactly. They're both expanding territories. I wonder why territories. the Aslanti got it and they didn't. Yeah. No, I, I actually do wonder that. Yeah, like, exactly. That's, that's yeah. kind of strange. It is. But okay, okay, okay. Enough of that. That's just a, a question. Well, just I to, mean, no, to, to be about. fair, they did eventually get drift. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They just got it from Pact World's people. Exactly. Yeah, but well, I wonder why Tryon didn't send the signal to the Vescarian. Right. They were, yeah. they were too, too scared. Tryon was like, these people are too badass. No, no, no. <laughs> Fuck these lizards. But but the Aslanti, they, they were trying to Pure blood like, humans, all right. Yeah, sure. Well, that, I mean, that's only further proves my point. Tryon didn't actually take the Aslanti as seriously as they did the Vesk. Hmm. Hmm. Tryon doesn't make mistakes when you're talking about Anyway, uh, yeah, it makes so, him a triplicate. Dri- drift travel literally tears parts of the universe apart. <laughs> you know, so I think Tryon does make mistakes. Tryon will care. No, <laughs> but okay, we're not here to talk about Tryon. Let's move this back over to Vescarium. Okay, so all right, so after reviewing the Near Space book, uh, the one that I found most suitable for this top talks, none other than the Homeworld for the Starfinder's mascots, the Skittermander. All right, <laughs> nice. now there's. A lot of information regarding Vest 3. That's which one it is. Surprise. Now, ranging from its geography, its residence, its society, and posing conflicts and threats locally on the planet. Now, starting from that word going in, Vest 3, or what the Skittermander continue to this day called Eddard Chunk. And I'm not sure if I've got that. Eddard per- Chunk? <laughs> Eddard Chunk. Eddard Chunk. Yeah. Eddard Chunk. Can you, say, can you say that in Sweet Heat's voice for me? At a chunk. <laughs> See, nice. but I, I still don't think that's right. You're, you still have a tendency to say chunk, and it is chunk. It is chunk. Yeah. Chunk? Yeah. 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 It's okay. It's spelled O E D D E R T C H O N K. What? Yeah. I think it's pronounced Eddard Chunk. So, Eddard Chunk. Yeah. yeah. So. It's the third planet from the from Gavinisco. Call us. Let us know. Yeah, exactly. Please do. And um, we would be jazzed. Um, it's the third planet from Gavinisco. Hosts two moons. Surprisingly called Vesk 3.1 and 3.2. Bet you didn't see that coming. Uh, Skittermander actually call it Big Mother uh, and Firstborn, respectively. Uh, Vesk Gunners call it Big Mama. I like that. So, I like that. As we enter the atmosphere, and like you would see the familiar blue skies, blue waters uh, that you'd find on Galarian. Okay, now Vest Three is what you'd call a garden world. Okay, it's trapped in a perpetual spring and with lush flora. You know? Trapped. It, well, Sounds um- <laughs> and I'll explain why. Okay, okay now right. to the untrained eye and fresh Vest gunners, this jewel of the Vescarium may seem like a paradise planet, but it has seen its share of volatility, cataclysms, and all other hosts of problems, okay? Um, And I'll get to that as to why, but with expansive forests and shallow oceans, Vestry is a dense terrestrial world with constant volcanic activity expressed as oceanic vents, gas seeps, hot springs, and minor tremors, okay? Now, millions of years ago, a massive asteroid that escaped the gravitational pull of nearby Vesk 4 collided with Vesk 3 and realigned the planet's axis to its current position. All right. And what that uh, what that allowed it to do was be trapped in a perpetual spring. Okay. 
So it doesn't have any winters or anything. So, what followed was only recorded in old Skittermander myths and legends of an ancient civilization predating the Skittermanders, whom they would call the Forerunners, and their extinction in a reign of fire and a centuries-long winter. As with every ecosystem-altering event, niches are created and filled. Prey and predator adapt, uh, and Vestry is no different. Alright, so... On the surface of Skitter, uh, Skittermander's homeworld, there's two primary continents define most of its landmass. To the west, we got the continent of Aberandaran, which is predominantly where Skittermanders rule autonomously. In the north are fertile lands that are considered the breadbasket for both the Skittermanders as well as the Vesk. Central Aberandaran is actually hard to miss, even from orbit, orbit uh, with its uh, distinctive pink inland sea called the Vermilion Sea. Formed from mineral deposits and the algae that feed upon it, this warm and shallow body of water is revered as a cradle of civilization. Now, Skittermanders themselves regard this body of water as sacred, and those who would travel off-world often bring a vial of iconic waters with them as a good luck charm. Now, probably to answer the question, I think Sweet Heat does have a bottle. I think it has a little vial of that. Yeah, that's cute. Yeah. Yeah. So... But in this little sea is a little tiny-ass island called the Womb of Creation. It's a holy island for Skittermander, okay? Occupies the sea and honor, uh, honoring the dead who have perished in great service to all. And to the east is the continent of Caverit, okay? This continent is mainly defined by the Vesk names Basin Sea, all right? Now, whereas the most of the... Uh, oceans are only like several hundred meters deep this sea is 12 miles deep and that is because of the great impact the asteroid that hit it that uh best didn't you know block so sounds like it blocked it completely <laughs> no, Vest well, 3 blocked it completely. Yeah, Vest 3 blocked it. Oh, oh Vest 4 hit. didn't block yeah, it. Yeah, Vest 4 no, didn't no, block that's it. That's my yeah. planet. No, we said, no, fuck that. Go to John's planet. <laughs> Piece of shit. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's GM Fiat, dude. Sorry. See, and the only reason, and the only reason uh, that the Vesca here is because of that fucking basin, okay? So, in that basin are... It's just littered with all kinds of materials and resources that are just like... Uh, just enormous mineral wealth, but it also has more active volcanoes. It's got deep canyons, but this rich resources that were found there bring the might of Vesk industry. Okay, so they just so they established this as their seat of operations, and they uh, established Command Three as their planetary capital. Yeah, well, I mean, we got to make yeah. literally billions of Dashkos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, billions of them. So, well, yeah, yeah, because you always have clutches of three or four, you know? So, the, <laughs> there's also... There's so much information in this there book, is, y'all. There there's is. So yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I, feel, I won't lie. I felt bad for, to some degree, subjecting John to this because John can't turn his brain off, and I knew he was going to write me a fucking novel. But mm-hmm. it's all very fascinating, and, like, we're, we're here with you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Just bear with me. It's only just a little bit longer. Okay. So <laughs> could have done this in an intro, John. <laughs> <laughs> no, I could have. Not, not about these APs. But not about. Not yes. relevant. Yep. 
So, despite being a verdant Shangri-La, it's a planet that's also occupied by the pragmatic and militaristic Vesk surprise, where there may be beautiful natural landscapes, there's also angular and unnatural infrastructure to fit the needs of the hungry Vesk profiteers. Now, with this comes deplorable conditions of which the Skittermanders are painfully aware. They're no strangers to it, and they've managed to abuse the Skittermanders' own cooperative instincts. So. They tell the Skittermanders to do their part for the Empire. <laughs> and, and by doing that, they're able to suppress their native language, okay? Impose strict work quotas with long, grueling labor that's often unpaid. And even so, for a Skittermander to go against its instinct would be traumatic, all right? Viscarium colonialism, yeah, fucking colonists, introduced so much new technology and opened so much of their homeworld to the Skitter that the Skittermanders can't imagine what the culture would be like without Vesk oversight. All right? Now, the thing about Skittermanders, though, is, is that the, uh, how incredibly helpful are, there are. There's a joke amongst the Vesk, okay? They say that it's been said that helpful Skittermanders will eagerly tear down your engine unless you eat them. And even then, they'll stick around and help you chew your food. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, to, to that point, whenever I found out, and it's been a while now, that Skittermanders were going to be a playable race, I thought it was really odd because, like, to be a Skittermander, like, fighter or warrior, you have to be such an oddball in that society and have overcome that programming of niceness no matter what. Yes. You know, like I, and, and because Skittermanders are so cute, so many people are playing Skittermanders, and I just don't find it realistic that there's that many Skittermander who, who are, you know, barbarians and warriors and all this. Well, you know, uh, there's actually an a, uh, not an AP, but a little one-shot that Paizo has created. Um, and it is... Skittershot. Uh, yeah, yeah, we know Skittershot. about Skittershot. Yeah, exactly. And it, you can play one of four uh, Skittermanders, and you have a uh, uh, a Vesk, um, I guess, boss. You know. <laughs> well, yeah. that makes well, I mean, sense. Like that's what that's definitely where they would learn it. Maybe yeah. even if they were just trying to be nice. Like some Vesk was like, "You there? You should be soldiers." Uh, okay, you know, and then they, become, they do it just out of out of like obligation. Yeah. Okay. Then, yeah, I'd love yeah, to do okay. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, like we don't want to let you down, sir. Yeah. You become yeah, like I, really good. Soldiers. I would love to help you in insofar as cleaving off this man's skull. Yeah. <laughs> as okay. long as it's helpful to you. Yeah. Two more things. Just two more things. Okay. Promise. You. Okay. So what I found interesting uh, was the fact that Skittermanders do not raise their young. Okay, so there are no schools, no daycares, no child rearing. It's completely gone. It's absent. Okay, this is because Skittermander spend their childhood years as non sapient whelps left to hunt oh and God, fend dude. for themselves in the forest. They are fucking feral. Okay, dude. Yeah, it's weird because when I heard about that, it's like <clears throat> the Skittermanders, the epitome of niceness and friendliness basically have they treat their kids like spartans like with the agoge yes. you know like they send their kids out into the wild to go and fend for themselves and if they die they die but if yeah, they come uh, back 
you know, if they come back, they'll strengthen the society. But like that, and they're sounded... cool with that. Oh, yeah, no, man. Like the social implications of the relationship between the Vescarium and the Skittermanders are it's not it's not a good look. It's not. Yeah, I know, I know. They're <laughs> only brought look, into dude. community whenever they ha- they fostered the desire to collaborate. And I'm sure the Vescarium is like, yeah, this is when the cultures will totally not change. You guys continue to stay uneducated and subservient to us. Everything's working out just swimmingly. Oh, man. Okay, so one more thing. Okay, so that is many in the Vescarium's higher-ranked view command over Vestry as punishment. All right? So despite the world's rich resources, it's actually common wisdom that Nata, that skittermanders are ungovernable troublemakers. Okay, <laughs> so they'll no, they'll cause no end of embarrassment. And right now, the current ruler of Vestry is High Despot Teret Kahan, and he is the only ruler of a planet that is not a Vesk. Okay, he He's is not a, Vesk. No, no, no. He's a lawful neutral male Patra soldier. What? He's a Patra. Yeah. So okay. So get this. Okay. So, Terret earned his position through masterful political maneuvering, leaving his superiors no choice but to either promote him or lose face. Okay? Oh my yeah. So, he had planned to win command of his own homeworld, which would be, hey, fantastic. But, you know, Vesk definitely saw through that. And they were like, no, 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 let's... Let's, let's uh, make a joke out of this, you know? So they just because it amused them, they decided to take this really stern and just like militaristic Patra and decide to have him govern Skittermanders. Oh, my God. It's like, it's like kindergarten cop. Yes. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's a great. Ex- yeah. Yeah. But it's, for like real. Lot, it's like a lot of things. And it's, uh, Vest 3 is kind of a fucked up stain on the it Vescarium, is. for sure. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, it's it's so enriching. It's so, like, enriching to the whole lore of it. Because, like, of course there's a Vest 3. You know what I mean? Yeah. Of course that there there's there's that, you know? Mm-hmm. And it, I don't know. That's fascinating. That is absolutely yeah. fascinating. Well, and it's also the only planet in the entirety of the Vescarium that was taken control of without any loss of life. Yes, <laughs> that's right. The Vest just showed up and we're like, <laughs> we're running your planet now. And the, the Skittermander leadership or whatever is like, yeah, cool, let's help you. We're not yeah. leaving it. Yeah. yeah, we're not. Well, but the Vesk's MO isn't making you leave. Well, you know? I said we're not leading it. We're not leading it, yeah. 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 Wow. Okay. That, that's 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 a, that's a very interesting planet. It's it's chaos, all the way down. I wonder what that means for Sweet Heat and Fritz. You know what I mean? Well, there is, and th- this is in this book, and it's been mentioned in in other snippets in other books that the Vesk, <laughs> the Vesk are so not used to how things went down with their conquering of. Uh, Vesk 3 and the, the Skittermander race that there is pretty widespread conspiracy that all of this is a ruse and that the Skittermanders are secretly like underground the number one fomenter of, of rebellion and yes. like, trying to overthrow the Vesk yep them and the Patra I'll just put it this way the the uh, it's a good thing that there is no Vesk in our Hacky Sack Heroes game 
You know, because I would definitely incorporate that. Yeah. Okay, so um, Adam, what planet did you? I think you said Vesk Four already. Yeah, yeah. I, so, I, but I, 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 I will say, to be fair to you guys, I as much as I wanted to nerd out on this book and read everything, a we had limited time, and b I intentionally just read up on. Vesk Prime and did not. I didn't know what planets you guys were doing at first, so I didn't read about your planets. I just already knew a lot about the Skittermanders. So right. I don't even know what Vesk 4 is. Well, let me tell you about it, Heath. I don't either. So Vesk 4 is the third world to surrender to the Veskarium. Uh, it was originally named Talfirax, or no, Talfi Reax. That's it. Talfi Reax. Talfiriax? Talfiriax, yeah. Sure, sure. Um, the ecology of it is that it has, it's like a swampland, lush jungles, volcanic mountains, like very active ecology and, um, kind of weather systems going on there. What's most interesting about Vesk 4 and kind of to tie back to what John was saying. And so I'm kind of surprised that Vesk 4 did not get hit by the comet that Vesk 3 did is that it has a significant gravitational center it pulls things in its orbit to its surface all the time like you you fucked it up once (laughs) (laughs) well i mean like it's so much so that this planet is nicknamed the glutton because it just draws so many orbital bodies to its surface including its own moons i like this has resulted in many craters that have wide-ranging geological makeup now here's why i chose Vesk 4. One of these craters houses some crystals that would then become the resource for Solarian weapon crystals. No oh, way. Oh, it's kind of like uh, the, the planet in the Star Wars universe that has so many of the kyber crystals mm-hmm. that... No the, way. The, the, oh, the Jedi cool. and yes. Sith mine, yeah. 100%. 100% is that... Um, so before the vest got there, there were two species that, I mean, there was more, but there were two main species that had like societies and stuff. There were the mole-like Talfi and the insectile Shazirians. Okay. The Talfi are extremely steeped in Solarian tradition. They're like amongst some of the first Solarians of existence. Um, However, the sad thing is, is that most of the Talfi Solarians, like the elders of the old way, were lost in the very short war against the Vescarium. <laughs> like, all yeah. their fighters well, went and fought a battle, as- and they all died, and the Talfi were like, okay, well, <laughs> God, guess well, you run as- this planet to- now. <laughs> to some degree, as is tradition, you know? Yeah, I mean, so like... It's sad because there was a lot of knowledge about being a Solarian and about the connection of humanoids and life to the stars and all that. The other race was the Shazirians, and they're this insect-type species that eats the ore of the planet. Like, they eat the rocks and everything. Okay. And um, But they have very predictable migration routes along the planet. So that both the Talfi and the Vesk have had very little problem with them because they could avoid them pretty simply and all they were doing was just kind of making this rotation around the planet 
eating rocks, you know? So, wasn't a lot of interaction there. So when the vests came, you know, and so all of all of the Vescarium planets have a high despot, right? That that's like a title that yeah. the Vescarium has for each planet. The Vesk in charge, yeah. or I guess in so, the case of Vest three, the Patra in charge is called the high despot. Yeah. So he's a Patra as well? No, he's no. not. No, no, he's not. She's not. Oh, you she, were referencing his planet. Right. Okay. So the high despot of Vesk four is a woman, a female Vesk named Camille Zanva. Um, before she became the High Despot, she was in the Vescarian military, and she was there kind of as part of the conquest. And she discovered this crater. And her proximity to these Solarian crystals awakened into her her own Solarianism you know and she then became very powerful member of the military and rose very quickly as being one of the first Solarians in the Vescarium and then because of what she discovered became the high despot of Vesk IV um, she has since been there for the last 20 years so she has ruled there for a very, very long time. In that time that of her rule, she has led the process and execution of founding the Corona Academy. Uh, fucking a, bad timing. I know, I know. Dude. I know. Um, it's a training facility for Solarians from all reaches of the Vescarium Empire. So this is where the Vescarium Empire goes to train as a Solarian. Whether you're Vesk or any of the other races, yeah. That are if part you're of the in the Vescarian military and want to be a Solarian, that's where you go. Yeah, if you, yeah, if you just want to go and become a Solarian, the Corona Academy. So Camille Zanva, uh, part of this kind of tapping into realizing that she has connection to the stars and that she is a Solarian and all that opened her mind to the Talfi and she actually partnered with a Talfi historian named Iyar to study and renew the ancient Talfi Solarian way which is now part of the basic curriculum of the Corona Academy okay so this high despot later in her life like realized what was lost yeah and is partnered with the Talfi, again, these mole people, um, mm-hmm. to, to find and translate all this ancient Talfi text of that you know they did excavations of to find and incorporate into the curriculum of the Corona Academy. So she has a really, really strong partnership with the indigenous species there. Um, and another interesting thing about Camille Zamba is that she actually has chosen, she has a council that advises her um, that's chosen by the people of Vesk IV, which is not oh, okay. typical of high despots. You know? No, not While at she all. She still no. has ultimate power. She has put a cabinet around her that is democratically elected by the people of the planet to advise her on the decisions for the planet. 
So this, in combination with her love for the Talfi, she is actually sneered at often by her peers, by her high despot peers in the Vescarium, and they call her the diplomat. Yeah. Um, but that's with like sarcastic undertones. You know what I mean? It's yeah. not meant to be nice. It's insincere. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because being a diplomat for the Vescarium is an insult. It's like being yeah, know, an yeah. accountant. But she's led a very peaceful and successful reign on Vesk Four. You know, well, I'm sure the planet loves her. Well, uh, and, and she's also because of the Corona Academy and because of the harvesting of the Solarian crystals, has is kind of an economic powerhouse for the Vescarium. You know, okay. And so, like, nobody nobody really has any problems with her. You know. They just kind of make fun of her because she's like soft because she loves these little mole people and their, mm-hmm. you know, in their kind of antiquated ways. Yeah. You know? um, yeah. But she's very successful and loved by the people of the planet. And, I, you know, her job isn't really in jeopardy either because she's putting up good numbers. Yeah, so she's doing, she's yeah. doing a good job. Yeah. Despite. Well, and that's the thing is like the Vesk, like, you know macho kind of mentality is the only reason that she's kind of looked down upon i would imagine because mm-hmm. that's that's just the nature of existing as a high-ranking member of a military autocracy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, i just think it's really cool like of course you know my love for solarian so i've gobbled all that up but just yeah. like this was one of those moments where i had respect for the vest particularly I have a lot of respect for Camille you know in in her rule and the way that she's handling her position you know and um I don't know it was very a very rich planet uh with two like the dichotomy of the two life forms that were there before the vest got there this really like kind of insect like advanced society mm-hmm. and then the more mammalian with the mole-like people. It was just, okay, it's interesting that they were both able to become dominant species with such different, you know, biological needs. Well, yeah, yeah, just they operated biologically so differently on the planet. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I do think one thing, uh, because this book has so much information in it, I think all of us, it's not so much a scrambling to like gather up all our information. It's a being overwhelmed with having too much information and what we can fit in. And because of that, I think we did gloss over and that's mainly my fault because I talked about Vesk prime, but I was trying to be quick. We didn't really talk about how their um, leadership structure works and the Vesk are a militaristic autocracy. Mm-hmm. Okay. So every planet, like you said, has a, what's the title they use? A high despot. A high despot. Okay. And, and it's funny because in, in our world and existence, despot is like a really negative term. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but for them, it's a, it's a, a source of pride and, yeah, and power. It's a title of honor. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But the way that it functions, yeah, is that they have each planet in the Vescarium has a high despot that, uh, all those high despots form a council, right? And that's how they get all of their decision-making done as they take a vote among the despots, except during times of active war. Now, you could always assume the Vesk are always doing warlike stuff, but during times of actively declared war, they generally have an emperor. 
So no shit. Yeah, but it's like the Romans. It is expected of the Vesk that as soon as the war ends, the Emperor steps down and lets the High Despot abdicates the throne. Huh? Yes. Yes. So who Emperor? So who is ready for that? Vescarium AP. That's oh man! I mean, uh, we're gonna have it's gonna have Bro, a Vesk you're, you're spoiling my you're spoiling my later on questions. <laughs> like, like that's definitely something I'm building up to. It's like, uh-huh. do we think that? I think, I mean, the cat's out of the bag now. But I definitely think having a book like Near Space be you know one third focused on the Vescarium in particular, it implies to me that maybe Paizo has something up their sleeve that they're gonna do a Vescarium or Vesk focused AP I at some so. point they've well, got to be yeah. they've got to be like, working on it I mean yeah, if like, you're going to drop all the lore and everything for it yeah um, I also I kind of felt bad because you guys mentioned the high despots of your respective Vesk controlled planets I forgot to mention mine the uh, the high despot of Vesk Prime is Vindiscayo Swarm Ripper that's such a name yeah who it tells me is a lawful evil female Vesk soldier mhm and as we were talking about the the way that their governmental body works is that yes technically because they're not in a declared wartime all the despots are in theory equal but the high despot of Vesk Prime necessarily holds a little more power than the rest of them he gets so, the extra vote yeah he she, gets the deci- yeah she gets the deciding vote yeah she's got the 1.5 vote yeah. right <laughs> we've already drained through a chunk of time but that's just the nature of it and i really wanted to be able to spend as much time as we could on some of these actual vescarium planets now before we move on to the next section i did want to address some things and we've already gotten into it a little bit about the vesk and the vescarium i think we can all agree based on what we've learned the vesk and their militaristic autocracy presents some pretty problematic elements I mean, in the early days of their history, they liter- literally committed not one, but two actual genocides. Um, sure did. So that kind of goes back to some of Adam's points about the dichotomy between, like, they, in many ways, can be surprisingly accepting of the people that they conquer, you know? Um, but they, they also have a very bloody and very problematic past. In fact, it would be kind of easy to think of the Vesk much in the same way that we at STF think of the Islanti. And I don't think I'm being unfair by saying that. I mean, they've they've literally conquered eight planets and committed two genocides at least. They're definitely expansive. Uh, and their, their prime motivation is conquest. But the, the simple fact is many of the Vesk consider themselves a superior race. And... That belief helped fuel their conquest of not only a planet, but an entire star system, okay? They've historically been a brutal and relentless empire bent on subjugation of other worlds to their control uh, and system of government. This is a big part of why, personally, when building Titanium Mike, I chose for him to be a Vesk outsider born to Vesk outsiders. I didn't want him to have grown up in the Vescarium or believing that the things that Vesk generally believe. Now, this is not to say that all Vesk think or act the same. On the contrary, there are plenty of Vesk, even in the lore of this book, who have rebelled or chosen exile over being a part of this system. That said, a potentially unexpected aspect of Vesk society, as we've talked about, is that once in control, they're very oddly protective over who they rule. They don't really care 
or they don't really, uh, yeah, care what their citizens believe or how they conduct themselves as long as they operate within the laws that the Viscarium has established and submit to their rules. And they have a long-standing tradition of assimilating ruled people to their empires and taking up some of their traditions and celebrating their art. This fluidity does a lot to prevent dissent and rebellion aside from just filling in gaps in their culture. They practice, and this is, this is how I had to sum it up, they practice a strange sort of, as long as you submit to, your, to our rule, we're all in this together philosophy. Like Mongols. <laughs> uh, yeah, a little <laughs> bit like Mongols, yes. Okay, so we've covered the worlds that we had time to cover in the Vescarium, and those are fascinating, but there's a whole lot of other ones, so get out there, do your research, find what planet is your favorite. But these eight Vescarium planets by no means represent all the worlds in near space. In fact, it's only a fraction of the planets in this 160-page book, not even a third of them. The second part of near space is about some extra worlds, not associated with either the Pact Worlds or the Vescarium, but still inhabiting near space. And I personally thought these worlds were really interesting, like individually. The folks at Paizo really got to flex some creative muscles. Uh, but equally interesting was the purpose that they serve. Uh, me and John were talking a few days ago about this, and I couldn't help but call these hook worlds. Aside from their descriptions, each one seemed to have a mystery or a conflict that could be a perfect adventure hook for a savvy GM. So Starfinder GMs can find lots of uses for these locations, whether building APs, one-shots, or just spicing up the adventures they're already running. Um, here on Tom Talks, they provided a reason for us to just nerd out about some really cool new sci-fi locations that set our brains on fire. So why don't you guys tell me about some of the near-space worlds that got you fired up? After you, Adam. All right. Well, uh, there, are, there were quite a few worlds to choose from, but... Um, as I mentioned earlier, the Demai was always a race that I was interested in, um, and so I looked into their homeworld called Demelco. Uh, and this planet used to be like a really beautiful, lush, green world. It was home to two advanced civilizations, but is now a dry and arid, ruined planet. Uh, inhabited by raging colossi and the survivors that hide from them underground. 200 years ago, the oceans themselves dried up and all of the plant life died. Colossi, almost these, I don't know, Lovecraftian earth elemental type monstrosities. Yeah. I mean, yeah. they are colossus creatures. Yeah. Right? They, they rose from this ruined earth and nearly wiped out the entire living population Jesus. on the surface of that planet. I mean, when I say the entire, like, down from millions to a couple thousand. Jesus. Um, those survivors, the the um, the Dimalkians call this event the Awakening. Um, the survivors, the couple thousand that did survive that, ran to the relative safety of the underground and forged a collective of enclaves called the Refuge. So they all live underground hiding from these giant monstrosities that walked their once beautiful planet's surface. A hundred years later, there was a mission that was carried out and some people went to the surface. And when they were on the surface of the planet, they made a very important discovery. They found some orbs that were scribed in runes 
that gave them an empathetic connection to the Colossi, allowing them to have the sense of where they were and even manipulate the directions that they move. Oh, shit. This, uh, yeah, this discovery led to the foundation of an organization called the Guardians, and that still exists today. And so it's this, the, these uh, Demai who have this like emp- empathic connection to the world and in the Colossi that, that walk it, that still protect the rest of their tribe enough so that they've actually started to be able to come back to the surface and start building small new settlements on the surface with hope to bring life back to this planet. Fucking yeah, is that yeah, that, that's, epic, that's dope. Dude? That's fucking yeah. dope. Seriously. Well, and to me, I thought I think that's just hearing it now because I knew a little bit about the Dubai and their their home planet, but it again it ties into a little bit of this the nature of the Vesk and Vescarium in that it has this very serious theme of uh, their planet was uh, in many ways conquered by these Colossi, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it has this interesting relationship between the conquered and the conquerors and they build this magical like empathy based relationship with them to some degree they were conquered but it's almost as if their world turned on them you know like the world like this thing just happened no outside source came to the world the world just died and then rebirthed these horrible creatures but now there's this like symbiotic relationship between those creatures and people that live there it's like it's like the earth decided to reset how life worked and did a new experiment like i wonder what i want to know what caused that awakening i I was gonna say the same yeah that and i want to know where did these fucking orbs come from yeah, like somebody is doing an experiment yeah. on that planet, dude. Like somebody is like testing mindsets of people or of, of right. civilizations. Now you, know? you have a bunch of Colossus riders, not actually riding the fucking Colossus, but still, dude, you know, actually. Herders. Well, like herders. Yeah, herders, yeah. yeah, you know. Shepherds. Um, and it, yeah. That's, that's so crazy to me. And like, I guess my darkest kind of brain path that comes from that is like if the earth was magical I feel like it's possible that maybe the earth would turn on us how bad we fucked it up right, <laughs> you know right. like right it's a it's 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 a very interesting history and as you said it's another planet that is just ripe for homebrewed adventures yes yeah and, and all of these worlds that's that's one thing like i don't want to boil them down to that's their only purpose because there's so much you can do with them but it does seem like there was a real emphasis on making these uh non-vescarium um uh near space worlds accessible to mysteries and adventures and and just to intentionally get your gears turning mm-hmm. about like because i read these books and i'm not even an experienced gm and i'm like all right i want to build an ap that goes you know it's it's a plucky band of people going and investigating mysteries on all these other near space worlds doing planet hopping stuff you right, know right and and quickly uh, in in terms of an ap like quickly figuring out what what that mystery is because every one of them seems to have a mystery every single one of them yep um 
but yeah, that's a fascinating planet. And the Demire are a really cool race yeah. and got some some good special treatment in this one. Mm-hmm, they did. So, so John, what was your world? All right, so I went with the Helfenthal system, all right? I couldn't just do uh, a, a hook this planet. This is so cool. I had to do a Helfenthal system, all right? So the Helfenthal system, okay, it consists of nine worlds, okay, with the predominant race of Megedlian people, all right? It's a civilization of stony-skinned, three-foot humanoids, uh, from the planet Helfen, who rely much more on magic than technology. You can almost think like stone dwarves-ish, you know, but they're humanoids, they're three foot, they're stony skinned. But anyway, they never invented any technology that would permit interplanetary space travel, let alone intergalactic. However, they have managed to link all nine worlds of their system by means of magical gates called far step arches okay and that's really freaking cool to me that instead of like actually going the technological route they went magic with it so now thousands of these far step arches exist across the system and travel between them takes only a single step now how it all started was they actually developed one then it was a one-way trip they would send it off they would send them off over to one of the planets, okay? And then over generations, they would have enough time, oh, after enough time passed, they built one back. So then after thousands of years, all these uh, uh, far step arches actually now to where it's just like, it's even said in the book that a Megedli courier might visit a six worlds in a single day, thinking no more of a trip than a crosstown courier would in other worlds. Okay, so I mean, think of that. That's like Super Mario sixty four, like jumping into pictures and whatnot, just going to different worlds. You know, I thought that was really cool. But of the nine worlds, Megedli only encountered one other intelligent race. While expanding and exploring their system, there was one that's called uh, that's called the Haleth. Okay, and it's on the frigid pla- uh, planet of Thel. And this is a race of friendly furred quadrupeds. All right. And Halas, with uh, the power of ice shaping, managed to terraform their warming planet to maintain the sub-zero temperatures they preferred. In fact, Halas, uh, which are actually skilled astronomers, already knew of the existence of Megedli from intercepted radio transmissions and celestial observations. So soon after they established this alliance, uh, there's actually they discovered that the Hallis ice-shaping magic would melt if it would ever leave Thel, okay? So even worse, Hallis were immune to the magic of the far-step arches and couldn't leave their world through this means. Ah, oh, that sucks. That sucks. Like, you've, yeah. got this, you've got, like, this one race that figured out a magical way to hop to all the planets in their system. No problem. Easy breezy. And yeah. they finally find another race intelligent that, that is race, sentient yeah. and intelligent and they can communicate with. And, and they're friendly. trapped on their own planet. Yeah. Because, oh because due to that reliance on magic, they don't actually have regular space travel. Yeah. But... This alliance, I mean, uh, just strengthened their resolve. And so they actually became influential members of the ninefold council that governs the system and deliver their votes via uh, McGedley pages. You know? Um, but 
Uh, although trips through far step arches, and this is where I was really interested. They already had my attention, but now I'm really interested. So, although trips through far step arches are routine and in fact vital to McGedley society, a few travelers had reported malfunctions with the magical gates in the past few months. Reports of travelers emerging aged several weeks or months or wandering an unfamiliar world between gates. Uh, some emerging with blood loss, falling dead immediately on the other end. Uh, some Dang, never even emerge at all. Yeah. So I thought so that was just really super cool. Do you, do you think threefold conspiracy has anything to do with this? <laughs> it's called the ninefold council. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, that's just three times, man. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like a third of the council is, cons- is has a conspiracy going on against the rest of the council. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. There's You're- something shifty going on with that shit, man. Man, conjecture is so fun. <laughs> right, right. 100% that. Well, that is... Dude, these worlds are so cool. So, I found a world, and I now, in retrospect, I feel like my world isn't nearly as epic and crazy as you guys' world is. Um, but I still thought it was neat. Um... A planet I found really fascinating. It goes by the name of Gascar 3. And mm-hmm. it's for the most part uh, like a water world. Um, its only major landmasses are a crescent-shaped continent called Lavnovia and and the surrounding islands, as well as an island-like subcontinent called Prospera. Now, these are surrounded by the enormous and constantly storm-wracked Yulalav Ocean. Gascar 3, in this sense, reminded me, Adam, you'll like this, a little bit of the world of Roshar from the Stormlight Archives, because it's said that the plants and creatures native to Gascar 3 have evolved to be sturdy to weather these massive storms that are constant on the planet. Um, But those are the only similarities, really. Um, but the first people to saddle, saddle, settle Gascar III were actually self-imposed exiles from the Vescarium, who called themselves Renunciants. See, there were followers, they were all followers of a prophet named Gascar Yulalov. This guy was a devout follower of Wadon, the god of equality, exploration, and freedom. Uh, understandably, he didn't really vibe with the way the Vesk government ran things. Um, what with the rampant social, uh, racial superiority complex and draconic laws and punishments. So he preached against the Vescarium's violence and their tyranny. So, as you would expect, he was arrested and he was executed. Uh, his followers, though, now had a martyr and fled to the edges of the Vescarium so they could continue the, to practice the, this religion. Uh, once they found out about drift travel, these disciples built a huge colony starship and took off into space looking for a new world to settle where they wouldn't be bothered by the Vescarium's oppression. Now, a thing to consider is that these are primarily Vesk that left the Vescarium, said, fuck this, I don't like the way you do business. Uh, we're followers of Waydon more than we are Vesk, right? Or more th- than we are, are followers of the Vesk code. Um... Within months of fleeing in their colony ship, they came upon the Gascar system, which had such a conveniently located drift beacon that they decided this must be a miracle granted them by their god, Wadon. So they had found their new home. They set their colony ship down on Gascar 3 and literally built their capital and major metropolitan city around the colony ship. 
Like they just dropped it down and built a city huh. around it. it. Sounds like civilization, like beyond Earth or something. Like yeah, that. it yeah. does. It yeah. does. Um, and in this city and this new planet, they were free to practice all their groovy wait on ceremonies and meditations, and they still do to this day. However, they weren't the only people to ever find the place. And now it's also home to a lot of pirates and outlaws seeking to lay low and what have you. So there's a really interesting, and we keep using this word dichotomy, but that's what happens when you talk about entire planets. Um, But there's a really interesting dichotomy between the people who live there. Basically, a bunch of priests and a bunch of pirates. And those those two um, social groups kind of scuffle. You know? Yeah, their worlds will never overlap, except through, exactly, uh, except exactly. through conflict. Um, also, there are a ton of really scary water monsters and stuff uh, all around the continents uh, and islands of Gascar 3, so that's another fun added-in wrinkle to this weird little water world. And as I said, not as epic and crazy as you guys' world, but I really thought it was neat to have this, you know religious settlement of, of Vesk that broke away from the Vescarium said fuck yeah, that like, we're gonna go to hear that there, there is like a splintering you know yeah well and yeah. then for them to get there and find their paradise and then have to deal with it starting to be overrun by pirates and criminals mm-hmm. yep <laughs> you know Vesk got a Vesk at some point yeah exactly so well and that sets up like I would love to play in a, a shorter adventure that was like you pick either the pirates or the priests and like you you know you wage war against the other ones or or, or cool. find a way to infiltrate okay so look guys i know we've been talking forever but I, I just gotta say i don't know about you guys but this book like the packed worlds that came before it is to be frank this is my shit <laughs> like i love how inspired i get about starfinder when i get to read about all these new expansive options for the lore and the settings of the game system but those aren't the only new options these planets that we've discussed for this next section let's try and quickly cover some of the new player and party options that help further flesh out not only the world but now we get to talk about the mechanics of starfinder so first Let's talk about some of the new race options. There were a few races that got special treatment, like we've talked about, and it's obvious I'm going to talk about the Vesk, so why don't you guys go first? All right. So I went with uh, Skittermander just because I happen to be on a theme. And uh, so the race option that I chose was uh, Guardian. Okay. Now, most Skittermanders are they're considered self-sacrificing and... Some put themselves directly in harm's way just to protect others. So what they do is that they take a, uh, well, what they do. These skittermanders, they can enter or occupy the space of a single, small, medium, or large creature without imposing the normal penalties on either themselves or the creature sharing their space. And they take a minus two penalty to AC while sharing their space, but provide the creature whose space they share with a plus one uh, shield bonus to AC against ranged attacks. It's like a weird variation of the bodyguard feat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like they just get in their business and fuck them up, you know? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay, and for the... uh, alternate uh, racial ability for a Skittermander to choose Guardian, what it does is that it replaces gr- uh, Grappler. Oh, uh, okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, that okay. makes sense. That's, yes. a, that's a good swap. It's a yeah. different kind of 
thing way to do the same thing to some degree you know? right right yeah that's cool mm-hmm and what about you adam uh well i of course went with the demai you know also staying in theme um, yeah I, I appreciate that guys um in that yeah there's there's a few options there they can be more intelligence based at the cost of constitution if you want um they have two different things that you could replace survivor with Bra- brazen bravado kind of plays into the demise force of personality like you know it's kind of a, a racial identity that they have is that they're all very kind of confident and outgoing you know um so what that does would give you a uh, bonus to bluff and sense motive checks. What I like about it, and I think Heath, you'll like about that, is that also when you aid another, you provide a plus three bonus instead of a plus two. I know Emily would like oh, that. That's great. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. And then the other one, kind of like, if you wanted to be a Demai Guardian, like one of these people that control the Colossi, right. you yeah. can take Which, it. who wouldn't want to be Well, it, I know. mean, you get kind of like stuck into doing that one job. You know, because it's called an empathic imprint, and it also replaces survivor, giving you the ability to cast mind link once per day, um, and that's that's the only bonus. But it's like associated with being a guardian, you know. Um, and then because of the world they live in, and this is really cool, Demai Witch Warpers get some exposure to some different paradigm shifts. Um, now anybody can take this any I mean you know I guess GM's discretion but these uh, paradigm shifts originated with the demise with the demise yeah and so there's enshrouding gloom that basically puts a blanket of darkness over a square and then there's phantom colossus where they like bring in a scene of the colossus from their planet and show it to somebody and that's enough oh, for, yeah. that's enough for them to like they lose their entire turn oh wow yeah that's fa- so which a, fa- a failed yeah. will save they lose their turn <laughs> that's amazing I, I like that yeah. I like that yeah. a lot so it's cool as I said the Demai got all their planet history plus some extra racial options and, and things to play with and also expanded witch warper from the character operations manual which i loved so just really really great player options available there yeah i mean i'm i that's one thing i've been really excited about is because witch warper is so new we're already getting new witch warper stuff you know and like that very early on getting to expand that very unique class that i love yeah I'm all about witch warper hit the ground running definitely all right so obviously and I'm also sticking with a theme, which good job, guys. Yep. Themes are awesome and make <laughs> everything on feel a theme less, here. less willy-nilly. Um, so I'm obviously going to talk about the Vesk, uh, and I, I'm going to give you a, a good chunk of stuff. Okay. So while, and I wanted to give you this quote out of the book because it ties into what we've already been talking about so much in this book uh, or on this episode. A quote from the book said, While some of those who have fought the Vesk see them as a monolithic, warlike race, Vesk, in truth, are just as varied and nuanced as any other interplanetary race. Nice. And and that, at least, is true, even yeah. if they have a very bloody history. So Vesk normally start with plus two strength, plus two con, minus two intelligence. 
They're yeah. not looked at as a very smart people. However, you could be a uh, if you grew up maybe like on the the Demai planet of Demalka, who live in in caves and stuff like that. You could be a, a cave dwelling Vesk who grew up in cave systems and adapted to them, and you'd get plus two dex, plus two wisdom, minus two charisma. So a lot. Uh, I, one thing I'm really excited about is that not everything is strength. Right. Like they gave you a lot of options to not just but play I a soldier. Thought, I thought you were always championing strength. I thought you were... I am, but I, I think it's good for the community to not have to play a Vesk as a stereotype. Right. Yeah. 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 So you could also be a Lambent Vesk uh, or a Vesk who has adapted to life on a variety of other worlds by learning to use the gift of Gab, basically. Uh, so you get you still get plus two strength, but you also get plus two charisma and the minus two intelligence instead of plus two strength plus two con. Right. Which that would be that'd be an interesting. You'd have to cater that to a very specific kind of build. But some of their alternate racial traits: brawny, uh, Vesk who take pride in being as physically fit as possible, and this is the one that's the most on the nose for what the Vesk already are. But you get a plus two to athletics and acrobatics, but it replaces your fearless. So fearless is you always get a plus two to like fear effects to intimidate right. you. Um, you can also get cave senses, and that ties into the cave vest. You lose your regular low light vision, but you gain blind sight sound 60 feet. But you take a minus four penalty to sight based perception checks beyond 60 feet, and a minus two penalty on ranged attacks beyond 60 feet in bright light. So that one's very specific, but like if you know that you're going to be in a lot of like darkness-based situations, um, and you can <clears throat> you'll be able to hit more easily with your ranged weapons and your perception checks as long as you stay within sixty feet. Nice. Okay, there's forceful mind, uh, which is for for your Vesk wizards, man. Uh, Vesk who have learned to fight via means other than weapons. It replaces your natural weapon claws. Uh, but so once, a Vesk is unarmed. Uh, for once, for the oh, first time shit. in history, a Vesk could potentially be unarmed. Blew my mind. I don't love that, I won't lie. Um, <laughs> it replaces their natural weapons clause, uh, but once per day, when an opponent succeeds at a saving throw against a spell, you can force that opponent to re-roll the saving throw with a minus two penalty. Nice. And then the last one is Frilled, and I love this one because it's it just like the Jurassic Park kind of thing. Some Vesk have particularly elaborate bone spikes or frills on their heads, giving them an especially fearsome appearance. So these Vesk gain a plus two to intimidate checks just out the gate, flat. But it replaces your armor savant. Huh. So you wouldn't be as pr proficient with as many types of armor, but you would be... If you were playing a like a witch warper or another, you know, charisma based class, and really wanted to push that intimidate, yeah. that's for you. Cool. Okay, so moving on. Um, obviously, there are a few new themes, um, or what you could think of as backgrounds, if you're not super familiar. Uh, did you guys have a particular theme that stuck out to you? Yeah, of course. Okay. Uh, I went with Stormrunner. Um, you know, a lot of these planets have some crazy weather going on in them. You know, as, as you mentioned, Heat, there's the your... your Gascar 3. Yeah. Yep. Well, all these storms. So there's this theme of being somebody who's kind of born of the storm. You know, the storm born. 
thrill seeker. Fucking Kaladin. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. I mean, to some degree, yes. You get a bonus to dex, and your theme skill is survival. You know, typical first level theme stuff. Um, at sixth level, you get way better visibility conditions in storms. And you can endure against storms better. You get bonuses to both those things. Again, that's kind of specific for the particular type of campaign you're playing. But if you're playing an outdoors or a volatile planet, Mm -hmm. somebody with a storm runner, it would be like awesome to have. Absolutely, yeah. At 12th level, you get Undaunted, which is kind of like, I don't know, taps into the spirit of Vesk. Although this isn't a Vesk-specific theme. But you basically are harder to intimidate, and you can delay fear effects by a round. Oh, man, that's huge. Yes, yes. Wow. So you can, like, delay that that daze or that whatever. You push um, aside that panic for just a little bit. For a little bit, yeah. yeah. And, and then the big, you know, the big 18th level one, and this is straight from the book, twice per day. After a combat in which you acted in a surprise round, acted first for tactical combat, or rolled the highest piloting check in the first helm phase for starship combat, you can spend 10 minutes mentally reviewing your actions and preparing the next surprise to regain one resolve point. This does not count as resting to regain stamina points. Yes. Yeah, but you can just snag one back. You can just snag one back. Spending... 10 minutes thinking about how badass you were in the yeah. last combat. <laughs> yeah, for real, dude. That's awesome. Oh, I'd, I'd love to see like a um, Stormrunner like Witch Warper. Yeah, yeah. You know? yeah. That's like, an 18th cause, level cause, skill, so you know. It's yeah, high you're going to be a badass Witch Warper, though, at that point. Too. Well, right. I, most, I mostly meant for the level 12 spell. Yeah, the level 12 like, thing's cool, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, and it's called lightning reactions. That's what's the last. That's what that skill is called. It's a cool. Thing. That's cool. It's a fun yeah. thing. Yeah. 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 Stormrunner is definitely. It does seem like somebody at Paizo started putting their foot down about. I'm getting some Brandon Sanderson inspiration in here. Damn it. You know. <laughs> well, maybe it was Eleanor. You know, Eleanor Farron had a hand in this. Yeah, that's right. Oh, nice. She was an author. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we yeah, love shout Eleanor. Out. Yeah, we. Bit. Somebody we've had on STFU. Yeah. Uh, well, and gave us Gulta, you know. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, um, so yes. I didn't I didn't do a theme. I just didn't feel like doing a theme. Um, <laughs> Fuck a theme. I went themeless. No, no, well, I mean, it, well, I mean, Stormrunner was the one I was kind of most interested in. And I knew you were doing it, and I was like, ah, eh, whatever. We're gonna need to cut time anyways. Yeah. Uh, However, one aspect of Starfinder I do think tends to get overlooked is archetypes, which are similar to themes, but they're kind of story-driven mechanical elements of your growing character that you can choose to spec into. Yeah, like multi-classing. Like specific multi-classing, yeah. Yeah, it's like a soft multi-class. And there's some very cool new archetypes in Near Space, so I'm going to take the first one on this one. All right. Okay. So continuing my trend of Vesk-centric entries into this episode, I wanted to talk about the Doshko Specialist. And I love it because back in my 5e days, I played monks all the time. I literally mm-hmm. played three of them. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's a bit like a monk who focuses his or her whole life on training with the Doshko. Um, now what's very cool, I think, like aesthetically and growth-wise with this is that they start... 
um, with a single toothed Dashko. Like, you know, you usually see the three pronged Dashkos. They start with a single tooth Dashko, but they gain another tooth or blade of their Dashko at 2nd, 6th, 12th, and 18th levels. And they're like rites of passages for them. Like, you get to have a more oh, badass wow. Dashko as time goes on. So, at level 2, you choose to give your single bladed Dashko. Uh, either disarm, reach, sunder, or the trip special property. Nice. At level two. Okay. At level six, you get a plus two bonus to attack when using that special property that you already picked. Okay. So the first two are that you get to pick basically a um, you know special maneuver, combat maneuver, and then you get a bonus, a level up to that at level six. But then, at level 12, once you've really trained years of your life to become a Dashko Master, you gain the Wounding Weapon Fusion and can spend a Resolve Point to choose the next highest result from the Wounding Weapons table what? for wow. when you attack with it. And you increase the DC to save against it. Wow. Damn. That's awesome, yeah. dude. So you... So you you do wound, but you automatically get the next highest version of wound, and you make it harder to succeed against your wound, um, which is awesome. And then, max max level for this archetype, 18th level, you get a plus four bonus to saves against fear effects, and you gain the Frightful Presence Universal Creature Rule with a range of 60 feet and a duration of 2d4 rounds. Damn. So... You can't be feared nearly as easily, and you terrify people for for two d four rounds. Uh, it's awesome, I, and I just thought I was like, I don't get much monk stuff, and this is freaking dope, and as close as I'm gonna get, and it's so vesk, a vesk type of monk. Yeah, you know? for sure. right. Yeah, uh, not that it's actually a monk, but it feels. I love like the uh, RP slant to it. You know, that's great. Yeah. All right. So, uh, what about what about you, Adam? What archetype did you pick? Uh, I didn't dig too deeply. I mean, I did look at Mediator because it's it's one that's associated with the Demai um, as well, uh, and it, it's what you would think is a very specific archetype. You know that you would. I, I feel like this is almost an archetype you would build an NPC with mm-hmm. to okay. aid a party because, like. The, the, all their things are, uh, of course, about mediating diplomatic interactions. You know, so like every every level, the second level, the fourth level, it's you know the, the second level is being understanding the nuance of diplomacy. You become an expert negotiator at level four. You learn like almost all the languages of the world at level nine. <laughs> almost um, all of them. Yeah, you. That's uh, like a lot. Um, and then at 12th level, you get empath- uh, empathic link, which allows you to like basically create like a mind connection, like a yeah. mindscape connection to where okay. like you share status with each other, you know? Yeah, I got you. Yeah, we don't, I think you did the smart thing and like you don't need to go super deep into that. It kind of explains itself. Right. But that's very cool and you could make a very cool character or NPC that is just the most amazing basically like hostage negotiator ever mm-hmm. okay john yeah so uh for mine i went with uh battle leader and i thought it was pretty interesting and instead of actually going the one that was looked like it was themed for it which was uh the quartermaster 
Um, I decided that, nah, I'm going to go ahead and, like Adam, choose something a little bit different. I went with the Battle Leader and uh, what it's known for celebrating victories as they happen. Yelling out to their allies when an enemy suffers a critical or lethal blow and inspiring further glorious actions. So you can kind of see where it might sound like it's a bit of a envoy to a certain degree. Um, yeah, but but like a much more like military leader. Exactly, kind of exactly. Yeah. yeah, you feel me. So it says you learn one victory cry at level two, which you can also boost at nine, and an additional victory cry at fourth, sixth, ninth, and eighteenth levels. Okay, and as a reaction, when you or an ally scores a critical hit against a significant enemy with an attack or uh, drops a significant enemy to zero hit points, you can issue a victory cry, choosing one victory cry you know and providing its benefits to all allies within 60 feet of you. Not yourself, though. So Yeah, sure. Each okay, well, uh, that's that's really cool. Uh, the, the whole... I mean, obviously, there would be a whole list of victory cries and effects. Yes, that they can yeah, have, yeah, 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 yeah. They're 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 very much similar to Envoy. You know, boosted damage, speed, saving throws, yeah, skill checks, yeah, yeah, stamina, yeah. etc. You know. So, but that that's very cool. And you guys, our listeners, will never understand this, but you guys, that's exactly like what Alamar from Storm King's Thunder would have would have done. Is yeah, like, hi, uh, hype yeah. up his party. Definitely, definitely. You know, it's a little bit like Envoy meets certain types of paladin mm. um yeah so those are cool and there's there's other ones guys i encourage you to check them out we're just kind of briefly running through there's briefly more specific to them <laughs> um, yeah well i mean the episode isn't brief but we're getting through those pretty quick um so last there's you know obviously there's a whole section on weapons and armor and fusions and spells and starships um, and we're not going to be able to go into all of those, but if you had any of the like little just nuggets that you thought were cool that you wanted to pop off, now's your time to shine. Yes, I do. I got just a skip shot pistol, uh, which is actually a McGedley uh, designed pistol. Okay, from the, the Helfenthal system, they've manufactured these firearms and imbued them with ma- with their magical expertise. So. Although these uh, pistols use a clip of ordinary rounds. The pistol Im- uh, is imbued with uh, teleportation magic into the uh, ammunition as it's fired. So a skip shot is a hybrid item, and it has bleed critical and the teleportive special property, which basically is is that it teleports a short distance after it's fired, and you take only a minus one cumulative pen- penalty when attacking outside the range with this weapon. Oh, oh that's, that's cool. cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's super neat. As far as armor, I just went with the Skitter suit. It's a heavy armor. It says, When the Skittermanders of Vestry realized that their new overlords intended to continue conquering neighbor- neighboring planets, they decided to help by designing armor for Vesk shock troops. So, <laughs> <laughs> however, their wild sense of aesthetics produced armor that very few Vesk military commanders would allow in their ranks. So, luckily, the suits are very popular on the open market, so Skittermanders continue to produce this armor for those with a bold sense of style. Yeah, it's like a bunch of hippies decided to make, a mili- you know, so military outfits, but they're all covered in tie-dye and shit. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that I thought was really easy and quick to talk about is that there are a bunch of new Dashkos. Uh, there's... Uh, this didn't this didn't exist before this, but there are now frost and storm Doshkos. So that's cool. Obviously, 
Dashko is the primary, like, iconic weapon of the Vesk race, but the Storm Dashkos have uh, energy, energy damage and the staggered critical effect, whereas the cold, the frost half Dashkos have cold damage and the enfeebled critical effect. So it just gives you a little variety in what kind of Dashko you'd like to use. Um, and then uh, I just wanted to bring up the planned obsolescence is a new witch warper spell that I thought was amazing because, you know, just the term planned obsolescence is hilarious to me that it's a spell effect. But what it does is if you're a witch warper, you can use a third level spell to transform a weapon or a set of armor into an archaic facsimile of itself. So you could take that that level 10 um power armor soldier is barreling to you you can cast planned obsolescence on it and you make it archaic so it can't power itself anymore oh my gosh that's fucking cool that's that's, that's really fucking useful for for a round per level as well so if you're a high it, it's better i mean you're only going to be able to use a third level spell if you're high level anyways so if you're yeah. a 10 or 12 level witch warper for 12 rounds now this guy's powered armor won't work or his laser weapon is now an archaic weapon you know? yeah it just takes all kinds of minuses and shit yeah know? yep yeah it's very cool do you have anything adam or are you good starships just check out the starship sections y'all there's so many new starships and, and tons of new starships for yeah and then like some cool new options it's cool mm-hmm. uh, i dig it nice Okay, well, did you want to try to squeeze in any listener questions at all? I mean, we got to get some in, right? We yeah. can't do I mean, no I know we're going listen. long, but I mean, uh, you know, I know we've been rushing through this last part and we're, we're all trying to get out of here, but it's a 160-page book. That's just the nature of the beast, so. Yeah, and like what we talked about in almost two hours is literally just the tip of the iceberg. Of oh, what's, God. What's, I mean, like, there's so many more fully Dude. fleshed out things for every subject we covered tonight. Worlds. Yeah. There's worlds, we, racial we did, options. <laughs> and, you know. We did six worlds between us and there are at least yeah. 30. I'd say we like at best covered 15% of this book. You know, I, I don't even think that's the case. <laughs> um, all right. So we're going to start with a couple timely questions because it is still the quarantine. So we got a couple quarantine questions. From Overplus, since worrying about this crap has been a part of my work week, if snack rations ran out, what would you start fighting people for? Chips or ramen? Ramen. All day long. Chips. Cheetos, baby. I gotta have them Cheetos. I'm not a big chips person. I like ramen. I I think it'd be ramen for me as well. All right. Next question. Also a quarantine question. From Wimlock, appropriate question from him. If you can only drink one thing, what would it be? What would your character drink? Quarantinis appreciated. Okay, so um, because I know who Wimlock is and what he does for a living, I'm assuming he's talking about just alcohol? Yeah. Because if I could only drink one thing, it'd be water. Yeah, <laughs> yeah say, exactly. Yeah, it yeah. would be water. But Let's say, let's say that water's a given. Yeah. All right. Because um, really, like, that's the only answer if that's only thing you can drink. You yeah, know? exactly. <laughs> but if you could drink water and one other thing, what other thing would that be? I think, you know, it's not too highfalutin, but uh, 
No, probably uh, the the breakfast IPA, man. Like, that's. I mean, it's, I don't know if I would be all as specific as that. I would try to get away. I would just with, say beer. Yeah, I would try to get yeah, away with yeah. just okay, saying see, beer. See, this question is yeah. flawed. Like, <laughs> I, and that's why I'm saying I know Wimlock well enough that he's asking what alcoholic beverage. Yeah, yeah, he is. Would he's, be the only I'd have one. to say vodka. Yeah, we knew that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Jameson and ginger, I guess. If I have to name a drink, that's what it would be. All right. Same thing for my character. Oh, that was the other part of his character? Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, just like Mike, I don't know, fucking just bourbon. Yeah. Some uh, kind of bourbon. Jameson. Bourbon. Yeah, I think so. What about Zeno? Uh, vodka also as well. Vodka yeah. as well, yeah. yeah. Uh, Weldy, he, I feel like he'd be like a vodka pineapple. Weldy would be like <laughs> probably <laughs> vodka and Red Bull. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's, that. I think that's... Uh, more, Trev, uh, Trev is them natty lights, baby. <laughs> or no, he actually in fiction is bitched about the natty lights. Yeah, I, mean, I think that like Weldy learned the vodka and Red Bull from DJ yeah. Trev. Yeah, probably so. <laughs> like before uh, that, it was just Bud Light Lime, you know. Yeah. Or some D- shit. DJ Trev would be so extra. It would be like the Incredible Hulk, like uh, uh, what is it? Uh, Hypnotic and Hennessy. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we answered Nisha's question with our entire episode because he asked, "What did you think of the descriptions of the Vescarium and its culture?" Just listen to the whole uh, thing. Yeah, just go yeah. back and listen. Yeah, and that's your answer. They're, uh, they're terrible but fascinating. Thoughts on the Dashko art type? Nailed it. Nailed it. Yep. I think we've got two more. Yeah, we'll do two more. Okay. Got one from our buddy Phrasma Saves, Steve from the Hideous Laughter Podcast. Hey, hey, he plays Matube on that show. <laughs> Matube and Saul on that show. What? He says, or he asks, feel free to skip this if it's been answered, but I just had an errant thought. What if the crew of the Epic Tracer lived in a different time in reality and you need to build them with the Pathfinder 1E or 2E rule set? What classes, feats, and stuff would you pick for them? So obviously, I don't want a full build, but let's, let's say what class. And kind of general build for your character. Wizard. Wizard, straight up. Up and yeah. down, wizard. Yeah. Got it. All right. I don't know. I mean, I feel like the easy, like the expected choice is barbarian, but I don't even I was like thinking barbarian. fighter. I was thinking I was fighter, thinking dude. Fighter. Yeah. That's what I, I mean, was thinking. I, you would be Alamar. You're not, you're not really a rage fighter. Alamar, I mean, he's yeah. like big and like he's emotional, but he's not, he doesn't rage. He's calculated with his fight. Yeah. You know what I well, mean? Well, but y'all like, keep bringing up Alamar. And again, I mean, no, I meant, one, I meant no one knows who that is. No, I meant Mike. Um, <laughs> I meant Mike. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, some kind of fighter. I don't I don't have the time to, like, really... I would like to have the time to delve into specifically what variation of fighter he would be. But, I mean, dude, he's a fighter. Uh, maybe a fighter monk multiclass because he uses his fists so much. You yeah, know monk isn't a bad choice for Mike either. I mean, know? I have played a strength monk in the past, so I could just make him a strength monk. Yeah, yeah. If I could add just one quick footnote towards that as far as wizard, you could also make the argument for sorcerer um, just based on the fact that it, the source of his power is mystery. Final question, and we'll let the rest of the cast answer on the Discord or whatever. Um, Last question is kind of a two-part question from Bipolar Pop-Tart. The first part of the question says, Have you ever played an AP that 
either felt overly bloated or condensed to fit the three or six book release pattern. Then he goes on to say, well, since I know you guys have played more 5e modules, were there some that you wish they would have expanded beyond a single book? So I think he's what he's generally trying to ask is, do we think that there have we've played some adventures that felt compressed or overly bloated. I think, um, I'm in the minority of our group. Uh, but I want to hear this. We, Go ahead. When we talk. Okay. I don't know what that <laughs> sass is about. Motherfucker. Um, but I do think I'm in the minority of we, you know, our biggest adventure prior to doing the Starfinder thing was Storm King's Thunder mm-hmm. in 5e. And I, we had a wonderful experience with it because it's a good adventure, but Adam put a lot of heart and soul into it and added a lot of elements that weren't originally in it based around our characters and catered it to us and made it very, very special to all of us. And it'll always hold a very significant place in our TTRPG hearts. That said, uh, it's like the it's like Giant Slayer, and in fact, was the inspiration for Giant Slayer in One E. And both of those adventures have caught some flack for being too bloated with the number of like giant fights. And Five E's version of it, you basically go around to different citadels of each different type of giants and and do that as a whole separate dungeon. And by the time we got towards the end of that, a lot of the party was like, okay, well, I'm, I'm tired of this to some degree, or I'm ready to be through it, and it's been doing a lot of similar things over and over again. And I don't think it's as bad as, as Giant Slayer is as far as um, just doing the same kind of fights over and over again, because there's the, vari- the variation of the different holds of different giants, types of giants, right? Now... We, even in our group, had that discussion of like, okay, well, we're ready to move on and get get towards the end of this adventure because there's been so much fighting of giants. But I was really fascinated the whole time by going to every single one of the different, like, castles and, and, and strongholds and stuff of the different giants because each one was a unique dungeon in its own right. And we only ended up skipping one, right, Adam? Yes. Yeah, and I was the, I think I was the one person cuz we eventually took a vote. And I think I was the one person that I was like, "No, I want to do that last one." Like I, I really do want to see what all no, the No, 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 you were not the only one. I wanted to as well. Okay. No. Okay. I I said I thought. <laughs> it's been years. Um but yeah, I mean, okay, well I'm glad you were in my camp on that one cuz I didn't think it was nearly as bloated or as uh, egregious at that as I know a lot of our fans are GCP listeners and have had trouble with Giant Slayer being a bit repetitive in that regard. Um, but yeah, I can see the argument for it being a bit bloated and, um, and, and that kind of thing in Storm King's Thunder. However, I, di- I didn't have a problem with that. I loved Storm King's Thunder, man. So I did too, it, but it was really unique to us, and so much of that is what Adam added. Well, plus in. I was also a giant slayer, so that was your, <laughs> you were literally a giant yeah, slayer yeah, with yeah. a sword called Giant Slayer. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah uh, same question to you: If it's any different than what? Than uh, yes, uh, I would say as far as what I felt was bloated um, would probably have to do with the uh, the whole hex dive uh, and with. Uh, Tomb of Annihilation. Tomb of Annihilation. Yeah, the Hex Crawl. Yeah. Now, the thing about that is is that I I found it 
imaginative. I loved uh, the whole like apocalypse now, like heart of darkness feel to it. But at the same time, that that crawl did kind of fray on everybody after a while, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but once you actually got there, it was kind of like, oh, you know, this is interesting because it's a whole Indiana Jones style temple and everything, you know. And it's yeah, uh, I think because uh, I'm I'm with you on that. Uh, I think we all had some reservations about the way that Tomb of Annihilation went down, and it was very unique compared to its other contemporary five E adventures. Yeah. Um, uh, but I think uh, Tomb of Annihilation is one of those things that like has caveats in retrospect. Like in retrospect, we were still in the process of maturing as a group. Yes. And and we had a lot of different people. We had two different groups playing it and had to, you know, reconcile that fact. And well, I was our- very experimental with that one. Like yeah. I tried to mash groups together, you know, run them yeah. in the same universe and everything. Like there was a lot of like added kind of complication to it you know what i mean yeah and i i think uh, with that one and i don't mean to put words in your mouth but i definitely think in retrospect i can appreciate tomb of annihilation and wish that we had all been more patient with it yes because i think we all got the the thing is and this has always been the core problem with our run-throughs of tomb of annihilation is adam told us day one day negative 10 he was like okay this one it it is a a meat grinder it's gonna kill people and all this so have a few characters built you know Mm -hmm. and um the problem that we ran into is that for the most part our groups were entirely too sentimental and too forgetful and just completely acted like they forgot that it was supposed to be a meat grinder and got so attached to our characters that it was like there was there got to be a vibe where it's like well if my character dies I don't want to play. Well you it cha- it got to like this we can't win this. And you know what I mean? And like the thing is you're not supposed to win Tomb of Annihilation. Right. Like like you're supposed it's to called s- Tomb right. of Annihilation. Get as far as you can until you die. Then right. You're character. supposed to be sending your characters to your death just so yeah. you can see what the system can throw at you. You know right. what I mean? And like and we did lose sight of that because of who we are as players. We care we we put yeah. a lot into our characters. I think that's yeah. what makes makes us who we are as Southern yeah. tomfoolery. But at the you know at, we got too attached and like and so then it became like dreary because it was like you're just marching these characters you love to their inevitable death and it just felt so hopeless and gloomy you know but i i do think that one um it's hard for me to answer that question about tomb of annihilation because of the weird complications that we had coupled with the fact that i think even to in some degrees more than our run through of storm king's thunder we were in the process of maturing and learning to understand what these games are and making mistakes, like making making very serious mistakes mm-hmm. as far as how to like view what this game is and what our characters are in that context. Right. You know, I, I I kind of almost feel bad for how we treated Tomb of Annihilation, if you know what I mean. Uh, you know? Yeah, I do too, a little bit. But I actually had fun with my last character in there. Yeah. Which was cut in half. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, look, we are we are running we are so really over time. long. I, if you are still here with us this long, Godspeed. You know? Achievement unlocked. 
Well, and it shows that you really care about books like this that really dig into the settings and the lore and those things that us three in particular really, really care about mm-hmm. about this game. Yep. Mm-hmm. And if you're still here, then that means we're all kindred spirits in that regard. And we appreciate you, and we can't wait for the next book that's like this. And as always, we will keep having to work on format for those Tom Talks. And cheers <laughs> to you. <laughs> cheers to you. Yeah. All right. Well, stay safe, guys. We love you. We know it's a hard time out there for everybody. Um, we're here. We're going to stay here putting out content for you guys. I mean, why do you think we, we pushed this one past two hours? It's for you guys. It's all for <laughs> you. you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, if there's anything we didn't get to answer or that you have questions about, hit us up on the Discord. And if you're not in the Discord, get in the Discord, man. What are you doing? Right. <laughs> I'm with it. Exactly. All right. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for joining me for this Tom Talks, bloated as it may be. Um, but I had a good time. This book is awesome. Go check it out. I really hope it at least kindles some more curiosity in all of you because, like we said, we didn't cover a fraction of this book and it's the kind of book that if you love the lore every page that you read is going to get you more excited about projects you can be involved with or even create here here yeah here, here. So, cheers guys cheers cheers i'll see you guys uh when i see you at the next whatever session of whatever we're doing yeah yeah we'll see you <laughs> we'll see you <laughs> right. love you guys love you too peace